Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I have a very vivid memory of something that happened, believe it or not, in the first grade. So we're going back like 60 years, but I remember it as clear as yesterday. It had to do with um, how my mom would pack a lunch for me each day and put it in my Yogi Bear lunchbox that I would take <laughs> off to uh, school with me. And usually it would be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a little bit of chips, maybe a cookie or two, and then there always had to be something healthy, right? So she'd put a piece of fruit in there, usually an apple. And believe it or not, I was a skinny little guy in first grade, and that was an awful lot of food for me to eat in lunchtime. And so, you know, I'd do my best to eat my food, but somehow I never seemed to be able to eat that apple, you know, the healthy stuff. And so um, I would bring my lunchbox home at the end of the day, and there would be my apple, and my mom would scold me for not eating the, the good stuff. Well, I got the idea that maybe I'll try to throw my apple away at school. But here was the problem. We ate our lunch in our classroom, and my teacher, Ms. Landry, had been a missionary in Africa, and so she would sit there while we brought our trash up at the end of lunch, and she would make sure we didn't throw any good food away because she'd say, there are children starving in Africa, you know. You just take that food home. That's good food. And, and so then I'd have to bring my lunch home, my leftover apple, and get scolded. So I was caught between a rock and a hard place, right? I was caught between Miss Landry and my mom, and I didn't know which was worse. So one day, I had a leftover apple in my lunchbox on my way home from school, and I came up with an idea, smart little dude that I was. I was going to dispose of my apple without anybody knowing it. And so we got off the school bus, my sister and I, Cheryl was five years older than me, and I said, I'll be right in, Cheryl, I've got to do something. Like, that wasn't suspicious at all. I went straight to the garage. We had a, a disconnected garage that was behind our house. I went back behind the garage where we had this pile of wood and other trash, you know, garage wood and stuff. And I thought, I'll just take my apple out of my lunchbox and chuck it behind this wood pile and no one will ever be the wiser. So I opened up my lunchbox. I pulled out the apple. I'm about to throw it behind the wood pile and my sister steps out from behind the corner of the garage. Aha, I caught you. You're in big trouble now. And boy, did I get it that night. You know, not only had I not finished my apple, but I had been deceptive about trying to dispose of it. So the next time this happened, I'm, I'm really thinking, what am I going to do now? You know, I can't throw it away at school, and mom's going to scold me if I bring it home. So I came up with yet another plan. On the school bus, I took my apple out of my lunchbox. I put it in the pocket of my coat, brought my empty lunchbox, and presented it to my mother, 
And then I hung up my coat in the coat closet where it always went. And when things had kind of settled down a little bit and it was kind of expected that eventually I'd get around to watching a few cartoons in the family room downstairs, I went to the coat closet, slipped the apple out of my pocket, made a beeline for the family room, turned on the TV so everyone would know that I was watching cartoons, and then I went to the furnace room. In the back of the basement, we had this dark, forbidding furnace room where you know you had the furnace and the water heater. And my mom also had a big chest-style freezer back there where she put all the beans and the corn and the blueberries, that uh, applesauce that she had put up for the, the year. They were all in the chest-style freezer. I went back in the furnace room without even turning on the light because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, it says in scripture. <laughs> I jumped up on that chest-style freezer and I chucked the apple behind the freezer and I ran back out again thinking that no one will ever find that apple there. Nobody did know the apple was there, but I knew. And it kind of haunted me. I didn't think about it often, but every so often I kind of get some guilt pangs about that apple behind the freezer and I'd, I'd go in the furnace room, turn on the light and look back there just to make sure it was still there. And sure enough, it was still there. It was turning all brown and shriveling and kind of rotting back there into this little gooey pile. Um, Nobody ever found it, but I'll tell you what, anytime anyone went into the furnace room for any kind of legitimate purpose at all, these pangs of anxiety would rise in me. And I'd wonder, are they going to find me out? For the next 20 years... I got anxious about people going into the furnace room until my parents finally sold the house, moved the freezer, and I figured I was finally in the clear. Now, why do I raise all this? It's because I think we all have some rotten little apples behind the freezer, don't we? Those things we've done that we hope no one will ever find out. Maybe for you, it was something you did while high or drunk. Maybe it was something that you said or did in a fit of rage. Someone you hurt, and they're still feeling the effects of it. And they maybe not even, don't, don't even really know that you were the one who did it. Maybe it was something you stole, a lie you told, or a baby you aborted. What's the rotten apple behind the freezer that just doesn't go away for you? may not hurt you, haunt you all the time. You may not think about it constantly. It kind of comes and goes. But if anyone gets too near the subject or comes anywhere close to bringing it up, feelings of guilt and anxiety and shame come flooding back. Experts may tell you you need therapy or you need to take some medication to overcome it. But what you really need is what God prescribed for the people of Israel In Judges 16, you need a day of atonement. Today we're finishing a series on the feasts of Israel. We've looked at four of Israel's major feasts, Passover, where we discovered that God's MO is always to save. In in the feast of Passover, we talked about God's redeeming work. Then we talked about Pentecost, and we talked about God's provision for us in, in revealing himself through the law and in giving of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was about God's revealing work. Uh, yesterday, or last uh, week, we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. David Brickner from Jews for Jesus was here, and he talked about how 
the Feast of Tabernacles is all about remembering what God did for God's people in the wilderness and rejoicing over God's good gifts to us. So it was about remembering and rejoicing. And if, if we're going to talk today about the Day of Atonement, we would talk about the Day of Atonement in terms of God's releasing work. God's releasing us from guilt. The Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur. It was celebrated by our Jewish friends just this past week, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. So Tuesday sundown until Wednesday sundown was the Day of Atonement. Uh, most Jewish folks these days uh, will go to synagogue for several services in that 24-hour period. They will fast. Uh, the Day of Atonement, unlike all the other festivals of Israel, is not a feast day, but a fasting day. So they will fast from food and drink from sundown till sundown. It's a day for reflection, to think about the year gone by and things that they may have done wrong, their sins that they might have committed. Uh, it's a day to make amends with people you might have hurt in hopes that uh, God will uh, write your name in the book of life for one more year. You'll be safe from his judgment. Of course, the Day of Atonement these days doesn't incorporate the sacrifices that God prescribed in the Old Testament because these days there is no temple, there is no tabernacle, there hasn't been one since 70 AD. And so the form of, uh, of celebration of the Day of Atonement is quite different from what God prescribed. When the Bible talks about atonement, it means that a price must be paid for our sins. That has the result of bringing sinful us together with the holy God. It's about the process of reconciling us to God by the offering of a sacrifice in our place. The Day of Atonement was meant to provide an annual day of paying for and removing an accumulation of sin that stood between Israel and God. And if there's any one truth conveyed by the instructions God gives for the observance of the Day of Atonement, it's that God wants to release us from our guilt. He doesn't want us to be carrying guilt. He doesn't want us to be going around feeling guilty all the time. God's heart is to release us from our guilt, from the judgment our sins deserve and from the guilt that weighs on our consciences. He wants us to live in right relationship with him. And the symbolism of the Day of Atonement, as we find it described in Leviticus 16, conveys two powerful messages that can set guilty people free. And believe it or not, those symbolic messages are conveyed by way of two goats. But before we get to the goats, we need to provide a little context for the Day of Atonement. It, it's here in Leviticus where uh, God commands its observance for the first time. The people of Israel are living in the wilderness in tents, and God is being worshipped uh, by means of a tent, another tent called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Uh, this is where God was said to dwell in the midst of the Israelite camp and where he was to be, to be worshipped. Uh, Leviticus itself is primarily a book of law, giving God's people instructions for many different aspects of their lives. Uh, and we read about the Day of Atonement here in Leviticus chapter 16. In a section of Levit Leviticus where God is giving Israel all kinds of laws about how they can stay clean before him. And so there are instructions about what animals are clean to eat and what animals are unclean and ought to be avoided. Uh, there are instructions about how to get cleansed after childbirth, how one can be cleansed after being healed of leprosy. There are even instructions about how you clean your house, believe it or not. And then comes chapter 16, which is a once-a-year cleansing of the tabernacle and indeed a cleansing of the whole nation. 
The assumption is that in the course of the year, as guilty people are bringing in their guilt offerings, the tabernacle and even the altar itself are going to accumulate a a whole bunch of uncleanness. And so once a year, the high priest was to give it a thorough cleansing by the offering of special sacrifices, and at the same time, these sacrifices would be a once a year atoning for the sins of the whole nation. It was to be regarded as the holiest day of the year. Failure to observe it was to invite God's judgment. And, and even as Jews today uh, don't feast on the Day of Atonement, but rather they fast. So this was to be a day of Sabbath rest, so no work and no food or drink. Uh, instead, you were to uh, contemplate your sins, to seek God's forgiveness, to repent of your sins, and, and, uh, and, and to uh, you know, make sure that you were right before God. It was the one day a year that the high priest and only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's presence in the midst of his people was said to dwell above the mercy seat, the the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And Aaron, the high priest, was given very specific instructions about what to do on the Day of Atonement. Aaron took these instructions very, very seriously because his own two sons, Nadab and Abihu, had taken it upon themselves to go into the uh, the tabernacle unauthorized with incense in a manner that God had not commanded, and they had been consumed by fire right there on the spot as a matter of God's judgment. And so Aaron is, is... taking very seriously God's instructions, he's told that on this particular day, once a year, he was to come alone into the Holy of Holies. Now, the tabernacle had two chambers. Two-thirds of it was the holy place, where there was the table of showbread and the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the altar of incense and the lampstand. And then beyond a curtain, the last third of the tabernacle was the holy of holies the holiest place of all and there was the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat where God was said to dwell among the people and it was only once a year that the high priest could go into the holy of holies behind the curtain and he did that he did so not just one time but three times on that same day the first time he was to go into the holy of holies uh, and before he went into the holy of holies he used to bathe himself with water and put on simple linen garments. He was not to wear his fancy official high priestly garments, but simple linen garments. And then he was to go into the Holy of Holies the first time with uh, incense and to make sure that the, the Holy of Holies was just filled with smoke of, of the incense. Why? Well, this was for his own protection because it was assumed that he couldn't tolerate being in the presence of the glory of the Lord, and so he would have to fill the place with this smoke uh, for his own protection. And then he would come out, and he would offer a bull as a sin offering to atone for his own sin and for that of the priesthood. So before he could atone for the sins of anyone else, he had to atone for his own sin, and then he would take some of the blood of the bull into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle some on the mercy seat and seven more times before the ark, and only then was he ready to atone for the sins of the people. And this is where the two goats come in. Two goats were brought by the people to be presented before the Lord, and in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 7, it says this, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, 
one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. So two goats are presented by the high priest on behalf of the people of Israel. They're set before the Lord and lots are cast. Now we don't know in what manner they cast lots. Was it the flip of a coin? On one side it said the Lord and the other side it said Azazel or did he have you know, a bucket and he drew out stones? One said Azazel, the other said the Lord. Uh, we don't know how this was done, but we do know that whatever, by whatever means the lot was cast, the belief was, as Proverbs 16.33 puts it, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And, and so this was the Lord himself choosing which goat was for him and which goat was for Azazel. Now, we know who the Lord is. And by the way, you notice that the word Lord on the screen is all in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in your English versions, that is a replacement for the personal name of God, roughly speaking, YHWH in, in the Hebrew characters, a name so holy that Hebrews, to this day, the Jews will not pronounce it. Instead, every time they see that name, they say Adonai instead, Lord. And our English translations follow that tradition. So what you have here is one, one uh, goat is chosen for the Lord and the other is chosen for Azazel. Now, who's Azazel? Well, some of your English translations will say one is chosen for the Lord and the other is for the scapegoat. And the way they get this is by saying that the word Azazel is a, is a compound word from several Hebrew words, and you put them all together, it means something like goat for departing or the goat for sending away. But that would be kind of unusual because Hebrew doesn't usually use compound words like that. Hebrew is not like English or German where you stick a whole bunch of nouns together and you get another word out of it. And so others say, and, and I think it's probably better to understand the word the way the English Standard Version translates it here as a personal name as the name of someone who stands in opposition to the Lord. So you have one goat for the Lord and the other for this Azazel. And if, if Azazel stands for an adversary of the Lord, then most likely it's, it's Satan or the devil. Now, does that mean that the people of Israel are being instructed to sacrifice goats both to the Lord and to the devil? No, just the opposite. As we're about to see, one goat is offered as a sacrifice and the other serves as sort of a spiritual garbage truck, a, a toxic hauler of, a, a hauler of toxic waste, if you will. So look at verse nine, where it says, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. So the sin offering is offered only to the Lord but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So here we have two goats that serve two different purposes and convey to the goat for the Lord. What happens to it's killed. The goat for the Lord is killed or the goat for the Lord is sacrificed. And what's the message here? The message is the debt of your sins has been paid. And there's nothing more you owe. The debt of your sins has been paid and there's nothing more you owe. People. There's blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. 
So he goes in the third time into the Holy of Holies, this time with the blood of the goat, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the utter uncleanness of their sin. So this goat is killed as a sin offering to the Lord. It's a propitiation, a gift that turns away wrath. It serves as an annual payment for the sins of the people of Israel. The word atonement literally means covering. That's why the, the blood of the goat, a cleansing agent of sorts, a taking away the stain of sin. So whatever it was applied to was cleansed by it. A cleansing is taking place here. And so this cleansing didn't stop with just the Ark of the Covenant, but it, it, it continued into the holy place as well. Verse 16 says, and so he shall do for eating. That is for the rest of the tent, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he sprinkles the the blood of the sin offering first on the Ark of the Covenant, and then presumably in the holy place on the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the lampstand, and then he comes outside and applies the altar itself to cleanse it. Verse 18 says, Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So the Lord's goat is offered as a sacrifice and the blood is applied to atone for sin. Then the tabernacle is considered clean once again and the debt of sin was covered for another year. There was nothing more owed. Can you imagine how good it must have felt for ancient Israelites to know that because a sin offering had been made to the Lord on their behalf, they were safe from judgment for another year? Not only had the debt of their sin been paid by another, the goat paid the price they should have paid, there was nothing more that was owed. And the tabernacle and the altar were now regarded clean as well because of that offering. And for us as believers in Christ, can't you see how all of this is a picture that looks ahead to what God would do for us in Jesus? In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is pictured as our great high priest who went in before God on our behalf, just the way Aaron went into the Holy of Holies on the behalf of the people of Israel. But unlike the high priest who served at the tabernacle, Jesus, Hebrews says, didn't have to offer the offering of, of bulls and goats to atone for his own sin before he atoned for the sins of others because he didn't have any sin to atone for. He was sinless. And instead of offering a goat to atone for us and having to do that over and over and over again, the book of Hebrews says that he offered himself as the perfect once for all sacrifice that never need be repeated again. So it says in Hebrews 9.25, the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. But Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Another contrast is made in chapter 10 of Hebrews where it says, and every priest stands daily at his sacrifice or service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They can't ultimately take away sins once and for all. That's why they need to be repeated constantly and why the priest's work is never done. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. He can rest. Amen. 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 
You see, what the offering of a goat accomplished for Israel once a year on the Day of Atonement, Jesus accomplished for us once and for all when he gave his life of infinite worth, a sinless life of infinite worth on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. Jesus gave his life for us, and that means the debt of our sins has been paid. There is nothing more we owe if we put our faith and trust in him. And that's why Paul can say in, in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us with the effect that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt has been paid. I love the way J.D. Greer describes this in a, a, a place where he talks about how he was once ministering in Southeast Asia and a Muslim man came to him and said, you know, why would God need somebody to die in order to forgive our sin? He said, if you sinned against me and I wanted to forgive you, I wouldn't make you kill your dog before I forgave you. So why would God require some kind of sacrifice to forgive? And Greer says, here's how I answered him. I said, choosing to forgive somebody means that you are agreeing to absorb the cost of the injustice of what they've done. He said, imagine if you stole my car and then wrecked it, and you don't have insurance and you don't have money to pay for it. What are my choices? I could make you pay. I could haul you before a judge and request a court-mandated payment plan, and if you were foolish enough to steal my million-dollar Ferrari, not that I have a million-dollar Ferrari, but if I did and you wrecked it, and I demanded payment for it, you might never pay it off. You'd always be in my debt. But I have another choice. I could forgive you. What am I choosing to do if I say I forgive you? I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong. I'll have to pay the price of having the car fixed. You have no debt to pay, not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. Not only, that I'm, not only that, but I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance, even though you deserve the opposite. And Greer says, this is always how forgiveness works. It always comes at a cost. If you forgive someone, you bear the cost, rather than insisting the wrongdoer does. And that is what Jesus, the mighty God, was doing when he came to earth and lived as a man and died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. Jesus was paying it all. That's the message of the Day of Atonement as well as the message of the cross. The debt of your sins has been paid and there's nothing more you owe. But we remember we said the Day of Atonement involves two goats conveying two different messages that set us free. So if the message of the first goat, the goat for the Lord that's killed, if the message of the first goat was the debt of your sins has been paid and there's nothing more you owe, we need to talk next about the goat for Azazel. What happens to the goat for Azazel? Well, it's banished. It's sent away. And the message here is, your sins have been taken away and they're never coming back. Your sins have been taken away and they're never coming back. Look at verse 20 of our chapter where it says, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, 
he shall present the live goat. So remember, the goat for Yahweh, the Lord, is offered as a sin offering and its blood is sprinkled to cleanse the holy place and the altar and to atone for the sins of the people. The other goat, the one for Azazel, is still alive. And here's what happens to that goat. In verse 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. So while the people of Israel are home observing a Sabbath rest and, and asking God forgiveness of their sins and fasting, afflicting themselves, as it says in the text, they are praying and asking God for forgiveness. And while all that's going on, the high priest is laying both hands on the head of the goat, number two, confessing all the iniquities of the people of Israel, as if he's channeling all that sin that's being confessed all around the country, and he's laying it on the, heads, uh, the head of this goat. It's as if all that sin, all the putrid things anyone had done in the year gone by is being laid on the head of that goat, and it becomes sort of a spiritual garbage truck, or worse, a toxic waste tanker loaded up with all the hot, steaming mess of all of Israel's sin. And then look what he does with it. Verse 21 continues and says, And he shall put on them the head of a goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The idea here is by the hand of a man who is fit. <laughs> you need somebody who's in good shape. Why? Because he's got to take that goat deep into the desert where it will never find its way back. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now it's likely that goat number two won't survive long out there in the wilderness without food or water or maybe be taken by a predator. In later times, in, the, in times of the temple, we, we read in some Jewish literature that the practice in those days, probably in the days of Jesus, was the high priest would declare the sins over the head of the goat and someone would take it 12 miles away up a certain mountain and then there was this particular cliff where he would give it a nudge and make sure that it would fall to its death just to make sure it was never coming back. Well, that was the practice in, in the time of Jesus and some people say that Azazel must be that place, but that was only a, a later practice. This was called the goat for Azazel, and, and assuming that Azazel is another name for Satan, it's probably a way of saying, take that, Satan. You brought sin into this world, and now you can have it back. We don't want it anymore. We don't want the shame of it. We don't want to bear the guilt of it anymore. We don't want to be controlled by it anymore. We won't live in fear of it anymore. The price has been paid. We've been washed clean. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. The goat has left the building and it isn't coming back. And so once a year, Israel got to watch this goat laden with all their guilt be taken away and they could breathe a sigh of relief that that wasn't going to come back on them again. So also in Christ, we have the assurance, not only that the debt of our sins has been paid, and there's nothing more that we owe, but also that in Christ, our sins have been taken away, and they can never be brought back on us again. I think that's what Hebrews was talking about when it said Jesus came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's probably what Isaiah was referring to when he talked about how the Lord has laid on him, on Messiah, the iniquity of us all. 
I wonder if what's, what King David had in mind when he wrote in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This phrase, as far as the east is from the west, communicates an infinite space because east is one direction and west is the other direction and never the twain shall meet. Unlike north and south, you realize. If you go north, you can only go as far north as the North Pole and the very next step you take, you're going what direction? South. There's a place where north and south meet, but you can go East and east and east and east and east, and there's never a place where the next step you take, you're now going west. No, you're always going east. You're always going west. Never the twain shall meet. And I think God in his wisdom did not say as far as the north is from the south, but rather as far as the east is from the the west. The idea is that when God forgives, he really forgives. Our sins have been removed from us as far as is possible to imagine. Once our sins have been removed, we will never be held accountable for them again. It's a statement of complete forgiveness. And so we're encouraged in the first epistle of John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. Jesus not only paid the penalty of our sin so that there's nothing left to pay, But in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, it tells us that his blood purifies even our guilty consciences so that no longer weighed down by guilt, we can better serve God. Or as Paul teaches in Romans 6, in Christ we have died to sin and have come alive to God in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We've been set free from sin to serve God. And so when the evil one comes after you, and tries to tell you, you know, you're worthless to God. Look what you've done. Shame on you. How could anyone like you ever serve God? Look at all those apples behind your freezer. You know what you can tell him? The goat has left the building and it's never coming back. Jesus Jesus not only paid the whole debt of your sin, but he has removed it as far as the east is from the west, so that if you're in Christ... He no longer sees your addiction. He no longer sees that abortion. He no longer sees the lies, your fits of rage, your actions driven by lust. He no longer sees any of that ugliness. All of it was laid on Jesus who died for it and took it away into the wilderness, never to be used against you again. You know, some people don't like to talk about God because every time they talk about God or somebody talks about God, they they start to feel guilty. But the Day of Atonement and the day Jesus gave his life on the cross both say to us, our God wants to release us from guilt. He wants to release us from the judgment our guilt deserves. He wants to set us free from the guilt we carry about all the apples we have hidden behind the freezer. The Christian life is not about making people feel guilty so they'll finally behave. Rather, the Christian life is about setting people free from guilt so they can really start to live. I love a story that Pastor Lee Strobel tells about a time they were having a baptism service in their church and and they had a large wooden cross on the platform. We've done this here at Bayside in the past too where you know, people are invited to write out confessions of sin and then nail them to the cross. We, we did that one Good Friday, and it was so powerful. 
uh, to, to see people coming up with their pieces of paper and folding them over and then nailing them to the cross several people at a time. You, know, you, hear, you hear the hammer hitting the nail and, and you think you know, it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross, but he, he bore it all. He paid for it all. And on this particular occasion, before they got baptized, the people who were coming for baptism were invited to, to write out their, their confessions and fold them up and pin them to the cross in, in a similar demonstration of how Jesus had paid for it all. But one woman came and did that, and then she was baptized, and the following week she wrote this letter to Pastor Strobel, and it went like this. I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word abortion. I was so scared someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and fear were that strong. When my turn came, I walked toward the cross. I pinned the paper there. I was directed to a pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eyes, and I thought for sure he was going to read this terrible secret I'd kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner, It's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable, indescribable. And then Pastor Strobel concludes by saying this, do you have inside of you a secret sin that you wouldn't even want to write down on a piece of paper out of fear? Somebody might open it up and find out. Let me tell you something about the Jesus I know. Not only does he want to adopt you as his child, He wants to lift the weight of guilt off your shoulders. Anybody here who could use that today? Let's bow in an attitude of prayer. In a few moments, we're going to be observing communion together. And there are people I've encountered over the years who said, well, I didn't take communion today because I just felt so unworthy. And my answer to that is, no, communion is for sinners who've been forgiven. It's for all of us. And it might be that you're here today feeling very unworthy. You know what apples you've got behind the freezer. The things you'd be mortified if anybody ever found them out. The things you live in fear of before God. I'm telling you right here, right now, Bring them all out in the open before the Lord. Confess them in faith that Jesus has already given his life to deliver you from the guilt and grip of that sin. And he wants to set you free. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever you bring to him in these quiet moments is covered by the blood of Christ and will be removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Take a moment right now and prepare yourself to come to the Lord's table.
Lord Jesus, it's with great joy that we come to your table today. Knowing that because of what you did in dying on the cross and rising from the dead, not only has our debt been paid in full, but you have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. How we thank you for your forgiveness, for your forgiveness and your cleansing. And we come before you today in preparation for the Lord's table to sing a song of celebration together saying thank you Jesus for the blood applied. Thank you Jesus for the death you died. Lord, we are so grateful today that we know a God who doesn't want to hold us under his thumb, but he wants to set us free. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that is ours in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.